Welcome to the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. Carol Hare graduated from high school in Manistique, Michigan, and went on to earn a bachelor's degree in business education from Lake Superior State University in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. She taught school for three years in Monrovia, Liberia, West Africa. She later received her master's degree in counseling from Northern Michigan University. Carol worked as a counselor for 27 years, 23 of those as a school counselor and teacher in Marquette Area Public Schools. After retiring, she moved back to Manistique to live near her elder father. She currently is employed as a child and family counselor at the Manistique Tribal Center and spends much of her free time researching and learning more about her Native American ancestors. Well, hello, everybody. We're off to a real rocky start. (laughs) It's partly my fault, though. We can't seem to share her slide presentation, but I I can see it, but it's not as a slide presentation. It's just as pictures. So did you give her... Did you give her permission to share? Like I you have the ability? I'm, I'm not the master host. See, oh. uh, normally it's Victor, but Victor's in Hawaii because Victor, Victor has that control. The, the library um, cooperative at three o'clock gave me the hosting properties and I called him to tell him we're having trouble, but he's not writing back. So I can't switch the hosting over to Carol. So that's where we're at. That's why this is not. But I think it'll still be fine. It'll still be fine. Normally does. But I can fumble away here and find pictures. And when they come up, Carol can talk about them. But um, why do you want to first, Carol, like we practice? Oh, by the way, everyone, this is Carol Hare. And she is the author of The Legend of. Can you pronounce it for us so we all say it the right way? It's The Legend of Kitchitakippi. Kitchitakippi. Not, not what I was saying. I had it a little bit different. Also called Mirror of Heaven or The Big Spring. Perfect. Oh. Yeah. Did you all get a chance to read it? It's so short. I wish I could have, but I couldn't get it here in Montana. <laughs> Amazon. John's got Amazon. Yeah. yeah, I know. That was my bad. I didn't, I didn't. I will do it though. I'm sure I usually well, let me tell you <laughs> a little bit about me and then a little bit about why I wrote the book, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm from Manistique. We moved there when I was in high school, like 14. And we grew up in, I have four sisters. We all grew up in lower Michigan. I, I had relatives, my, my dad's side, mainly aunts and uncles who would never admit we were part native and light and rightly so, because I think in the forties and fifties, you know, they were taking away children and uh, putting them in boarding schools. And I think at least my aunt may, I know, or, or one of my great aunts, probably aunt Pearl, aunt Pearl wrote this story down in a little booklet. She never gave way to that she was Native American. She just told this story that was told to her grandma by some Native American woman. So we didn't really grow up in the culture. It was not discussed. It was not talked about. I mean, my dad told us, yeah, you've got Native blood in you. And my dad looks very Native. And my grandma, his mother, really looked Native. I mean, and she had all the attributes of a an elder native woman, very spiritual. She taught me so many natural remedies. Um, 
but we never really identified as Native Americans until we moved back to Manistique, where my parents were from, both grew up, they were high school sweethearts. And we moved back there because my father and his brothers and my grandpa were commercial fishermen on Lake Huron in lower Michigan. They started out in the UP and then they moved to Lake Huron because the fishing was better. When I was 14, we moved back to Manistique for the fishing industry. My father and my uncles and my grandpa, it was Peterson's Fisheries, and they had so many difficulties with all the state regulations on fishermen. And many times I remember in high school, my dad coming home very upset. His nets were confiscated because they were allowed to fish whitefish and chubs. And if a trout got in their nets, the DNR confiscated their whole catch. It was, and they were checked on randomly. And there was so much, so much scrutiny on them that my dad had a hard time making a living. So my father and my, my grandma, really, his mom said, there are tribal rights to fishing and we need to get those right because they were not, they were not really being practiced. So my father and several other men up in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, other tribal members, our tribe wasn't even organized. This was in the mid sixties. The Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan had no structure. There was no reservation. There was land given to the Indians, but there was no, there was no board. There was no governing structure. There were no bylaws, nothing. So my father and five other people, and they were from all over the UP. Fred Hatch was one. Uh, I think he was from Barriga. But they met in a garage in Sault Ste. Marie for several years and started doing all this research. And then my dad was really the forerunner of going to Lansing and finding out all the federal treaties for fishermen, native fishermen. So that's when my real identity as a Native American started. It was when my dad needed to prove he was Native American and he had fishing rights along with his brothers and my grandpa. And thank God he did because that those five men organized our tribe. They, they started a council. They started um, several committees. They started an elder section and they, they started our medical. They, under our federal rights, nothing was being given to Native Americans there in that area at the time because we weren't organized. So because of my father and those five original men, and I think there was one woman, our tribe was organized. So when I was in high school, I started hearing more and more about our tribe and that we were Native American and my father's fishing business thrived because the fishing rights were then accepted and practiced. And um, he made a very good living at that. When I graduated from high school, I went away to college. I went to college in Sault Ste. Marie. I attended powwows. I knew I was Native American, but I moved away. No, my dog wants to talk. I moved very far away. I went to Africa and taught school. And then I lived in North Carolina and I was very out of touch. Excuse me. 
Come here. No, I was very out of touch with the tribal things. My sisters and my father, on the other hand, my father was on very, he was on the tribal council. He went to Lansing many times. My younger sister became the Indian education coordinator for the schools in Manistique. My other sister was on um, some other committee and they're all very involved now. So I didn't move back to Manistique till 2016. And when I was a child growing up in lower Michigan, we visited Manistique often. And every time we went up there, we were camping, we visited grandma and grandpa, and we always went to the big spring. And we were told this story about this native woman, young woman, and this young brave who fell in love. And it was a tragic story of their love and about jealousy and how he was killed in a hunting accident. And she was so upset and so forlorn that she threw herself into the big spring and drowned because she couldn't live without him. So as a little girl, I grew up with that story and, and thought, oh, this is such a romantic place and it's so beautiful. And I have slides of Kichitekipi that I wanted to show you in all seasons. I don't know how many of you have ever been there, but if you have not visited there, you must go there. It is, from the time I was a little girl, I, I get chills and choked up because it is one of the most beautiful, spiritual, calming places I have ever been in my life. And I have traveled a lot of places. So when I got back in 2016, I went to Kitchen to Kippy. Every time I came home to visit, I would go out there winter, fall, summer. I prefer going in the winter or the fall after it's closed because now it's a big tourist place and it's very crowded, long lines. But if you can get there after they close, you can still go in there. Go across the raft in the winter. It's just, it's so beautiful. So I... I went to Big Spring and out at Big Spring, they had this big wooden framed standing poster, The Legend of Kichitekipi. And I'm standing there and I'm reading that. And it said this story about this young brave who was in love with this maiden Indian girl. And she told him if he took his canoe out in the middle of the Big Spring, and she jumped from a branch and he caught her, it would prove his love for her. So he did this and that story said his canoe tipped over and he drowned in the big spring. And she was back at the teepee laughing with her girlfriends about how foolish she was. I read that and I almost started crying. I, I thought that is not a native legend. That, that is awful. That, that, just upset me so much. So I went home to my dad and I said, dad, do you know what they're saying the legend is? And he goes, oh, I haven't been out there in years. And I told him, I said, somebody's got to make this right. That's not the Indian story we know. And he said, well, you know, I still have those old little pamphlets your great aunt Pearl wrote about that legend. I said, yeah, I remember that. And so I said, we have to get aunt Pearl's legend the one passed down for hundreds of years in my family. And um, it was my grandma's sister's grandma. So 
that's several hundred years, you know. And she had written it down that in, it was like in the 1700s, her grandma was told this story by Squaw Mary, an old Indian woman out in Thompson, Michigan. And the story that we were told, I decided we have to get that real native legend out. So that's when I decided I got to write this. I have to write this. I've got to contact the state park departments and let them know, take that poster down. And so I did a lot of research and I talked with Pat Nelson, the ranger out at Palm Book and Indian Lake State Park. And he helped me get in contact with people in Lansing. And I told them about my family's story. And it's very Native American sounding if you've read it. It's not about a little girl at the teepee laughing at her boyfriend. That's so bad. So I wrote this when COVID first started. It took me four years after I moved back home. And finally, when COVID started, I thought, okay, it's time. I don't have anything else to do. And then I got a hold of Tyler and I got a hold of um, Victor because I'm not an author. I, I never planned on writing a book. I mean, I love to read, but this had to be done. So I did copyright researching and oh, I, I did a lot of work on it for this small little 32 page book. I contacted the state park. They took down that poster. I, um, I contacted the gift shop there and they sell them in the summer. So they're being sold quite, quite a lot in the summer when they have, they have over like 10,000 people a month there go through there I mean from all over the world and I would deliver my books when I live there I just moved away this summer I, I now live out in Seattle area in the Pacific Northwest and um, I'm learning a lot about the tribes here and that little booklet now I feel the legend that was in my family will be passed on and that's the only reason I wrote it. I dedicated it to my father. And I have pictures of my father and my grandma, his, his mom, um, in my slide presentation. I know I, I don't look Native. I look like my Irish mother. <laughs> but my dad's side of the family looked very Native. And I'm very proud that someone, and I guess it had to be me, took the initiative to carry on the legend of that beautiful place that so many people visit. And I thank all of you for reading it and I hope you will visit there. So that's my story. This is the book and it's for sale on Amazon. And it really was a, a work from the heart to do this. So. I'm trying to think, oh, there was something else in my slideshow. Where did all, where did that other legend come from? That was, that was what my main research found. Um, John Belair in the 1920s was a lumberjack in Sini, which isn't very far from Manistique. And um, I guess forestry was not doing real well. So he decided to move into Manistique and he bought the local dime store. And he was always going out in the woods and he saw this place, the big spring. It was nothing but a 
you know, a little deep, deep pond out in the woods, but it was owned by Palm Brook um, Lumber Company. And he would, he had his little boat and whenever he had company come to visit them in the UP, he would take his friends and his family out there and take them across the big spring. It's a 40, 40 foot deep natural spring, 200 feet wide. So it's, it's a few minutes to get across it. And he would go across in his boat and it was such a beautiful place and he saw that it was becoming very littered by the lumber company. They were dumping a lot of their debris and garbage there. And he just hated that that was happening. So what he did, he contacted the owner of the lumber company and he said, we have to, we have to clean this up. This is a beautiful place. And he said, the lumber company was gonna sell it to him. But he said, no, no, I, I want it to be preserved for everyone to see. So he contacted the state and he got the lumber company together with the state and he negotiated that the state would buy that. I mean, the lumber company thought it was just a dumping place. So they sold it to the state under the agreement that John Belair made with them that it would become a state park for $10, $10. And hence it became a state park. John Belair was very instrumental in getting it advertised and getting more people to come because of course, because of his business too, he wanted tourists to come to Manistique. So he started, um, and he admitted this before he died. He and a poet friend of his made up many stories about the Big Spring and they would advertise it to get tourists to come. And that story was one he had made up. He also used to take little flasks of water and call it uh, magic water from the Big Spring. And he said it had healing powers. I mean, maybe it does, I don't know. I've never taken water from there. And he would take some of the sand, the dirt around the area and put it in little tubes and say it was, uh, you know, special special Indian power dirt or whatever. So he made up an awful lot of stuff about it. <laughs> but I don't know if any of that is true, but he did admit to making that up and it brought a lot of tourists there. So the state built a very rough raft, which I have a slide picture of. And that's how people would come they would pay to get in the state park and they would take this raft across. When I was a little girl, the raft was logs and there was a wooden log on a, a big uh, a big cable. You had to pull it yourself. And we loved it as kids, we'd fight over who was gonna pull it. Now, now it's very much more modern and there's a wheel you turn and um, it, it's been updated quite a bit. There's a nice gift shop there but the surroundings are the very same. When you walk in, and some of my slides show this, it's so beautiful. It's tucked back in the woods. There's a little path you go down and there's trees fallen all around. I mean, the forest is full of all these old fallen trees and they're not dead wood. And on the bottom of the spring, the raft has a big center part and you look down into it. Also one of my slides. You can see all these 
huge trees at the bottom. Well, in the legend, it explains how they got there and what happened and why all those trees are there. Um, so that's part of the story. So when you read it and you go there, it just means more to know, wow, how did all those trees get down there? There, something happened. <laughs> and um, what else was in my story? Well, John Belair, like I said, he did make it a famous place, but he also really insulted, I think, Native Americans by the stories he made up. And that's why I had to make this right. I had to tell the story as we knew it. Native American legends always are oral. I mean, very few are written down. In fact, there are some natives who don't think they should be written down. They should be kept in our culture. But this was such a public place. And I just felt it was being desecrated by that story that John Belair made up. So it's written down now, but it's also a legend has two parts. There's always good and evil in most Native American legends. And there's always a lesson. And that's what the legends are for. They're to teach cultural things or to teach us right and wrong or some life skill. So in the legend of Kichitakipi, the story that my great great aunt Pearl told us, um, there is, there's a lot of lessons in here. There's lessons about safety on Indian Lake. Indian Lake is a very dangerous lake. I know firsthand it, it can change in an instant. That's in this book. And I think the legend was to teach younger natives, be careful on water. And it also has a lesson about jealousy and what jealousy will do to us. And honesty and lying when you've done something wrong and you try to cover it up and you lie that's what the chief did um I mean he ends up murdering the young brave and he lies about it but it got to him because he knows he knows that is not the native way honesty is one of the great grandfather teachings and it got to him and he he became I think he actually went mad and then the, the legend says he became, he left and became a spirit of the lake, a very angry spirit. So yeah, it's an interesting legend and it has a lot of lessons in it. So thank you all for reading it and thank you for your interest in it. I think I have to change like my, my biography in the book says I'm still working at the tribe there as a therapist. <laughs> I'm finally retired. I don't live there anymore. So do you have any questions about it, Carol? Carol? Um, sorry, I have been going like mad, saving all your pictures to my desktop so we can look at them. Oh, um, I'm almost done. So if oh, a few wow. a few questions, then maybe we can look at okay, your- Okay, that'd be great. That'd so, be great. <laughs> sorry, we're technical difficulties tonight, but go ahead. Um, uh, I don't see your names. Oh, I do yeah, now. I, I have a question. Um, my name is Fran Mary Francis, and I live in Montana now, but I lived in Tower City, Michigan for 19 years. So Lake Huron was very familiar. I was curious where you were on Lake Huron. We were in Harbor Beach. Okay. Do you know where that yeah. is? 
Yeah, it's kind Almost, of over towards the thumb. It's like I right think. here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been out there, I think, once. Yeah, yeah, my kids my kids both went to CMU. And now my son lives in Tumwater, Washington. So Oh, wow, <laughs> wow. See, there's a lot of tribal native culture here, very highly respected oh, yes. by the yes. government, by they have a beautiful cultural center not far from me but even on their news the tribes here are so much a part of their culture in fact seattle was named after chief seattle right. and i have heard i, I knew that yeah i wish that montana would be a little bit more proactive that way it's it's yeah, yeah. Michigan, <clears throat> we're still kind Michigan of a little bit not. stuck in the cowboy era over here Michigan is a little behind, but not as behind yeah. as Florida, where I lived for a short time and tried to learn more about the Seminole tribe. They're they're very unorganized. It's sad. I, um, I I came upon this group through a friend here in Montana who wrote a book, and but she grew up in Marquette, and so she was featured as one of the UP notable books. And oh, which and one? Now I'm like. I'm reliving my Michigan life and, and I have read and seen pictures of Kichitikipi and I'm definitely going to try to get there one of these days <laughs> and go. read the book. <laughs> Once you go, you'll want to go back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Part of me almost. Cheryl, I think Shelly had a to question me. too. <laughs> go ahead. Mine's probably not a question, Carol. I, I am so glad you wrote the book. Thank you. Um, and the story that I heard growing up was probably somewhat in between your story and the one that you said is published. I don't think I ever saw that. And I've been to Kitchikipi many times. Um, like yourself, my parents lived downstate, but my grandparents were on Stonington and then okay. in Perkins. And we would go there every year. That was part of um, there in Fayette. It was just the two stops that we made every year. Um, and anytime I've been in the UP now for 40 plus years living here, anytime we have company, we make sure they go there. Um, yeah. We take them there. The word that that I would use to describe it is tranquil. I love that place. Yes. It's just oh. so tranquil. And that's why I wanted and, to show you many of my slides so that we could all feel it. It yeah, is. Tranquil. And the fish, the big trout that are in there. Um, yes, which you can see because you can see all the way to the bottom. It's so clear and so beautiful. You even see the little spring sprouts. This is the um, bottom of the big spring. And those yes. are it's limestone and sand on the bottom. And they're it's, not they don't even know where the water is coming from, for sure. But it's always bubbling bottom. up in different spots. Can, can everybody see the picture? Yes. Yes. Oh. God. Okay, great. I think hey. I got I'm like yeah, the bottom and you see it looking through this middle part that's cut open on the raft. Yeah. Yeah, we were just there probably about 2 years ago for the last time and it hasn't changed in my entire life other than like you say the raft itself is modernized, ah, but the spring, yeah. I think the same spring this over is, this since is I was a, a little recent, kid. This is recent. So this is the shore of the the big springs, mm -hmm. Kitchen As you're walking in, you it's can beautiful. look across. Yeah. So if I you haven't been there, go. Yeah, you can just and this is a picture in the fall. I I love it when the tourists aren't there. 
This is making me homesick. Oh, no, this is a good picture. Yeah, I found that on, on Google. Isn't that beautiful? Okay. I oh, this picture uh, is from the Schoolcraft Historical Society. That is John Belair and his wife and some of their visiting relatives. And that's the raft that was made originally to go across. Oh, <laughs> much now. 19, early 1930s. This is the middle of the raft that you look down and see all the fish. It's trout and I think also walleye, but they're huge. Oh, they're huge. That is glass covered. But when I was a kid, there was no glass there. I mean, it, you could just see the water. This is the gift shop out there. This is you another know, picture really of John Belair with his wife and sister-in-law. John Belair and Sarah. I wanted to add, there's a really interesting connection for me because I've been teaching piano for 30 years. I started in Michigan and the series that I use is written by a couple who are from Ann Arbor. And the first time I ran across the name Kitty and Kippy was a song in one of their lesson books. Oh, <laughs> and that's what caught my eyes. And wow. now it's been like, there's a song about Kitchen to Kippy. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I think they made it up. You know, it's just kind of a teaching tool. But this like, is wow. looking <laughs> over the side of the raft. The water is so aqua, but it's so clear. It's all fresh springs. And then there's like this little channel you can see in the back there. It leads to Indian Lake. Beautiful. It's so peaceful. You can see why the natives made this. This was their summer camp around Big Spring, Kitchitikipi and Big Indian Lake. And then when fall came and close to winter, they would migrate south. And I believe that probably meant they went further either down into Wisconsin or I don't think they would have crossed like Michigan. Probably went Iron Mountain way because it's milder there in the winter. These, these are the logs you see. I like that picture. All the trees that came down. Oh, it's going too fast here. Okay, there's the logs. Yeah. Sorry, everybody. The fish. All right, now this is what you were talking about, but I can't make it bigger. Okay, this just gave you like that that big water there, body of water, that's Indian Lake. And then right to the left of it, off a little bit from the big lake is the big spring, Kitchitikipi. So it's kind of connected to Indian Lake, but you wouldn't know it when you're there because it's all woods around it. And then that just gives some facts about it. It's 200, the actual big spring, Kitchitikipi is 200 feet wide to get over and 40 feet deep. It stays a constant temperature around 40 degrees all year round. It is never frozen that anybody knows of until 2021. The winter of 21, it had a slight ice glaze over it, which everyone was quite surprised. It, it never froze. I mean, you could go over it in the middle of winter. So that just told a little bit about the facts. This is an aerial view of it. That's that's Kitchen to Kippy. And then that the water 
kind of like that little river there, that little passage that leads into Indian Lake. Beautiful. Palm's book, that was the lumber company paid $10 to. That one, I, I just could get small. Some of them I yeah. couldn't. <laughs> okay, that's okay. There's another picture in the evening. Beautiful. It's just beautiful. There you can see them going across. And the story, the story is beautiful. I think the story is sad, but heartwarming about true love. Mm -hmm. Okay, Some raft pictures. And then if you can, are the pictures of my dad and grandma in there? Uh, they might be coming. I, everyone that was on that thing, I, I did. Okay. So they're, maybe they're coming up, I hope. But I did dedicate this book to my father who worked so hard to get our identity established as tribal members. I mean, him and my mom went all over the Midwest finding relatives and looking up documents. This is Kitchen to Kippy in the winter. That's all I have. So I guess I don't have a picture of your dad. I'm sorry. Well, he's in the book. And then oh. I dedicated it to him because... Actually, without him and his ancestors, this story would never have been shared. Okay. Did you want to go back to any pictures or or stop? No, I think it was just to show everyone in case someone had not been there. And if you had been there, hopefully the pictures will um, want you to go back. I wish I could go back right now. <laughs> I have a question for Carol. Yes, Maria, make it good. Easy on me. <laughs> we, we, we've met through other events, so personal friends here too. But I've never asked you this. After writing this, and it's kind of a reconnection to your roots, do you have future plans for further um, Native American writings? Well, I have connected much more to my roots. Uh, especially since writing this. I mean, when I moved back to Manistique, I started, you know, attending more meetings and powwows and things. Um, I went to elder lunches. But then when I, I went to work for the tribe, right after I wrote this, they needed therapists. And that I keep retiring, but I keep going back. But I, I worked for the mental health clinic in Manistique, the tribal clinic, for a couple of years. And that's where I really reconnected with my tribe. We had a cultural lesson, the staff every month. And I saw the, um, I saw the traditional healer regularly twice a month. I, I learned so much more about native ways and native teachings. And one thing I will always remember this one of my clients gave me a gift and we're not allowed as therapists under the, the code of ethics to accept gifts from clients. It's just crossing a boundary line. And I, my supervisor, I talked to her about, it. I said, I don't, I can't tell her. No, I can't give it back to her. She gave me a plant. And my supervisor taught me this. She said, in the native culture, when someone gives you a gift, you you cannot refuse the gift. You cannot. It's just wrong. No matter what, 
you always accept what someone gives you. But in my situation, I couldn't keep it. So I passed it on and re-gifted it. So the plant hopefully is still living and thriving and someone else is enjoying it. And I got enjoyment out of passing that gift on. So it was a lesson, lessons like that I learned along the way. And I'm still learning. I, I helped my sister when I was in Manistique. Um, she teaches cultural lessons in, in the general classrooms, which is wonderful. Sure. All Native Americans plus all non-Native students learn about the Native culture. We made dream catchers. We taught the seven grandfather teachings. They did not do that in Marquette schools where I worked for 30 years almost. Our, they separated. The Native kids came to the Native room and they had their cultural lessons. But my sister teaches all the kids. In fact, I tutored for them for a while as the Native tutor in the elementary school. And we had students, they, they, they all wanted to be Native American. And they all said, well, can I be Indian too? And because it was such a neat thing to learn about all the history and the, the traditions and where the regalia, we sewed like the regalia that the young dancers wear at the powwows and dance. She taught them the dances and everybody wanted to be Native American. That's, that's so awesome. But I wish all schools did that. I mean, we need to do that with all cultures, with Black America. We need to do it with, you know, our, our Native Americans. We need to do it with the Muslims, with every culture. We should be teaching it to all of us. We're the melting pot of the U.S., even though, you know, we Natives were here first. Yeah. <laughs> we need to learn about all of us, all of it. So, yes, I am reconnecting. In fact, my... my um. My spiritual director was really our traditional healer in Manistique, and he came from the Sioux, and I met with him. And when you meet with the traditional healer, you always bring tobacco as a gift. And I met with him, brought my tobacco, my last meeting with him. And I told him I was moving, and um, he said, oh, you are moving to a, a tribal culture area. They are, the Seattle area in Washington is very respectful of tribes here. They don't have to fight to be heard. They are incorporated into almost everything. And he gave me my tobacco back. And he said, I'm giving this gift back to you because I want you to connect with a traditional healer there. And you get connected and continue your learning because all tribes have the same basic seven grandfather teachings. And he said, you must continue. You've come so far. And he gave me my tobacco back. And he said, I want you to reconnect. And you give this gift to him from me, your teacher. And tell him it's from, from our tribes in the Midwest. Yeah. Nice. So, nice. I have not done that yet. I am ashamed to say. <laughs> but I have gone to the cultural center. But the Muckleshoot tribe in where I live, I live a little bit north of Seattle, about 20 miles north. And it's the Muckleshoot tribe here. So, and they have beautiful powwows. All year round, they do powwows. So I am going, I do plan on getting involved. And if I would, if I could have someone come to me, or if I could seek out more, more native legends, 
I would love to write more of them down. But like I said, there are some natives that feel they shouldn't be written down. They should be kept in our culture and be told, keep the tradition of the oral passing. Yeah. Maybe I need to, you know, learn them and do oral presentations on different legends. <laughs> I don't know. But I do have a heart for Native American legends. I've read many books. Another book I'd love to recommend if you want to learn more about Native American stories. It's called Mother Earth Spirituality. And I read it back in the, oh my goodness, back in the 70s, I think I read it. 80s maybe. It, it, but it's an old book, but it's it has so many neat stories and talks more about traditions of Native Americans. Generally, I, I don't know if it's specific to any one tribe, but wonderful, beautiful book, Mother Earth Spirituality, and I forget the author offhand. I'm going to look it up. <laughs> Tyler? Yeah, I have, um, a, I, I have a question. Um, could you say a little bit more about um, I think it was the, the park or the state when you approached them and asked them to change that sign, did you get resistance and did you have to like show some kind of proof that your story was correct and the other story wasn't? Because I, I myself, I found since I wrote my book, Kabagam, yes, I, one, of, one, of, one, of, one of the things I did is I, I said, these photos have been misidentified all these years. This one photo was not Charlotte Kabagam. And yet I see her picture, that photo keeps popping up and people don't want to just accept that that's not her. It's hard. So, so I, um, tell me your experience. Well, my first person was Pat Nelson, the ranger at Indian Lake State Park, who's also the ranger at Palm Book. I, I just, I would take my dog out there and walk all the time. So I'd sit in an office and just BS with him about this. I said, hey, I know the right story. And he did um, a video on, I don't know, it was one of the UP stations about Kichitikipi. And he goes, oh yeah, we know that's all made up. I said, well, I want to change it. I, my story's not made up. And I said, um, who would I contact? I, they've got to take that poster down. And he gave me the name at the Michigan Park and Recreation Department in Lansing. They have a historical and cultural section and he gave me the name of a person it took me two years to even talk to someone there two years I just was always calling and and writing to this person and finally um one of the subordinates of that main guy wrote me back and Tyler it was after after you edited my book and we finally had the final draft I sent them that final draft. I said, here's my story. I'm going to publish this and it's going to get out there and your story needs to be taken away. And they called me. I can't, I have it in my notes. I'm sorry, I didn't get all that out, but I have a name of a person at the State Park Historical Cultural Section. And he, I sent him a copy of the final book then too. And then the next, I don't know, it was like the next year I went out to the state park and they don't have any legend anywhere except in the bookshop, my book. But on the website, I think it's still on, it might still be on Palm Book State Park website. I haven't checked recently. 
So you but can't I know the man is you you can't prove that your book was the 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 reason why the sign went down. I mean, it didn't just decay or something or no, it was in a glass case. You know how the state parks have those big wooden mm -hmm. posts. And okay. Yeah. It was in with all the other information about the park. And it's not in there anymore. So okay. I, I'm I I feel like they heard me. I don't see that anywhere else. I'm going to have to look at the Palm Book State Park website and see if it's still on there. I know um, I also wrote Wikipedia because Wikipedia had that legend down for it. And they have mentioned now my my legend. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's a legend is a legend. It's you can't really prove where it started or how it started. But I know my great, great aunt Pearl, her grandma told her the story and her grandma's the one who heard it from Squaw Mary out in Thompson. There were just too many factual things about Thompson in the story. <laughs> so I believe that was the original native story passed down. I don't know any others though. Before I moved away, I, I wanted to meet with many of the elders because I went to the elders lunches every week. And then COVID hit and they, I, I don't even know if they're having elder lunchers even now. So I lost touch. And like I said, I don't know that they would want me to write them. So, but Tyler, your book, I love that book, Kabalgum. I, I gave it to my dad. He loved it too. I meant to tell you that. He you. really enjoyed reading that because Kabalgum came up from the Sioux area. He came from there and went, you know, they moved down to Marquette. And that story had a lot of things that coordinated with things I've learned too. Thank yeah, you. I don't know how you get, where are those pictures? Are they on the websites or? Uh, well, there was a, um, there was a display at the Bolmier Heritage Center NMU of, of old Marquette pictures, but they had a few Native Americans and two of them were ones that I had in the back of the book and said, these have been mislabeled. And there they had them with the wrong names on them. And I said, that is, I went to the director. I said, that is not Charlotte Bogham. He's like, well, that's the name that we got on them when we received them. I'm like, well, I'd, I'd keep bugging them. Find somebody yeah. to look her up because yeah. Like you, I wanted things correct. <laughs> and especially when you've done the research. And it's this, it's basically the same as what you're saying, that this this man made up this other legend to try to promote the area and obviously make some money off of it. And in my case, this picture that has been misidentified, um, there's a man called Ray Brotherton, who was actually the head of the Marquette County Historical Society. And he apparently put together some slides and decided to do a presentation and just decided, well, we're going to say this one, Charlotte Kabaga. We need a picture of her. Here it is. <laughs> and put oh, it in there. And we know it's Charlotte. not her. We know it's, yeah. I mean, we have no pictures of her at that age. And the girl is way too young to have been her for there to have been a photographer in Marquette when she was that age. So. Yeah, I, I it's sad. You wonder how many other things regarding natives and other cultures and people in other cultures have been mistold, misread, mislabeled. And yeah. I think here, I mean, people see a picture of a Native American from the 1800s and they just say, oh, that's Chief Kabagam," because it's the only Native Americans whose name they know. Yeah. 
Of course it's him. Who else could it be? There weren't any other Native Americans here. Yeah, I know. Well, (laughs) uh, it's it it's uh, it's heartbreaking, really, because you think of think of that's what happens to us. Like if you know, a hundred years from now, someone's runs into my book, like you know, one of my descendants, maybe this will stop being printed and they'll find it and they'll go, wow, we got to get this back out in print. And what if they have the wrong picture of me or <laughs> that, it would just, it's just wrong. I mean, so many things are just wrong. I'm sure every culture experiences this though, especially the minorities. I'm sure every minority experiences at some point in their ancestry or history things being mistold mistaken and flat out lies like oh that story I still get just oh anxious when I think about that story John Belair made up that is not a native story (laughs) oh I'm sorry I have another hand up over here Terry yeah I I just I'm interested in this how things do get distorted and I do, I, I don't have a lot of contact with Native Americans, but we do have the Ojibwa uh, tribe here, the Kiwanabe Indian community. And I, when I worked at Finlandia University, I did some, we did some exchanges, some cultural exchanges, and I got to know a few people there. And the oral history was very important, but mm-hmm. it changes. And so when you talk about things, and, and especially if it's a legend, it is going to, um, morph into something somebody puts their own spin and I mean it's not a bad thing but there that is a a to me kind of a, a reason why maybe you do want to write things down and I you know so. maybe you can make that case you know even in my family this legend has changed uh, I thought I'm glad you pointed that out because in my aunt Pearl's notes that she had written out that little booklet, the chief one night snuck in to Young Eagle's teepee before they migrated south and slit his throat and then hid him in the woods and threw all his belongings into the big spring. And my, I don't know if my grandma and my, also my Aunt May and my cousin Esther, they would talk about this because they'd come up from lower Michigan and visit. We'd all go out there. Um, they, the story that we were told growing up was, no, he was killed in a hunting accident. And yes, there was a big rival between the chief and this brave. And nobody really knew what happened, but it was a hunting accident. So maybe when my Aunt Pearl, my dad's cousin, She's really my cousin. We called her Aunt Pearl, another descendant. I mean, she was very close to great, great Aunt Pearl. And I I conferred with her a lot when I wrote my book. And um, she passed away last year, God bless her. And and I said, she said, um, I read your book, Carol. Aunt Pearl always told us that he slit the guy's throat. I said, I know, but that's not how grandma told us. And she goes, well, maybe grandma Pearl just, in fact, my grandma was called Pearl too. Uh, she said, maybe maybe that was too violent to tell little girls. So you see, maybe it was changed a little bit to be a hunting accident instead of he slit his throat. And my 
my aunt Pearl who recently passed away, she, I said, but that's, you know, that portrays the natives as such savages, like, because he's jealous, he's going to slit the guy's throat to get the girl. And, and she said, but they were savages. <laughs> so, so the story did change like two generations till I was told, I was told the chief was out hunting the, a bunch of them went hunting and young Eagle got killed in a hunting accident. It was an accident. So in my story, I kind of combined the two. I made it kind of like an accident, but <laughs> not really. <laughs> so, so yeah, I guess legends do change, you know, but I know no legend from a native American is ever going to be about a young girl laughing at her boyfriend in the teepee. <laughs> well carol i am just very thankful you have a short book it's so nice this time of year to read something short <laughs> when everybody's so busy it's and short and fewer words than originally was thanks to tyler <laughs> and it's it's to the point and it it has a, a story and a lesson Yep, it's very good yeah. and valuable. Yep, and we thank you tonight for coming on. And I'm so apologize for not getting that PowerPoint to work. I think it all went okay. I hope you all enjoyed it. I did. Hopefully, got most of the pictures on. I, I was like I said, I was really moving, so I don't know why. You did You're good, right. Evelyn. Thank you. Now, and everybody, go visit the Big Spring. Yes, if you have. Next month, we are going to be reading The Side Road Kids, Tales from Chippewa County by Sharon M. Kennedy. And so this is going to take place the second Thursday in January. And would you believe it? I don't have one of those calendars on me right now. So I'll write you the date. But the 12th. <laughs> 12th. So we've 12th, got this one coming. There. And then in February, we've got Terry's book, The Home Wind. And then hopefully around that time, we will be, it will be released the UP notable book list year four. So hopefully we will, um, I know from our end, we're willing to keep the same arrangement and hopefully UPA is too, and we can keep paying authors to come and talk to us. So um, thank you all. Mary, did you have something you wanted to say? I just wanted to say, I just got a Facebook post from Craig Brockman, who was last a year ago, November, and he had brought a new book out this summer called The Curve of the Earth. And he just announced that he had he was in the top 10 of the 2022 Best Indie Book Awards in Christian Fiction. Yeah. And, and it's, it's an, I have read this book. It's an awesome, awesome story called The Curve of the Earth, a novel of Lazarus. And I would highly recommend it. Yeah, <laughs> I read I a couple of Craig's. They're very good. Yes. And I was so happy because I came to the Zoom meeting and met him in person. And, and now we've been corresponding back and forth as friends for quite a while. So... Great. I'd like That's to say good. one more thing, Evelyn. Sure. Um, I, I want to thank everybody for just the attention to my book. And I feel humbled and honored. And um, I've moved away this August. So I've kind of lost touch with some of you and the UP Authors Association. I'm so busy visiting grandchildren. 
<laughs> but I do hope now I'm pretty settled that I'll be be seeing more of you. And I I just really value our association and all the help everyone gave me when I did write this little book. And I want to stay connected. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I'm trying to con my husband into visiting the UP next fall. <laughs> it's a long ways from Northwest Montana. <laughs> <laughs> I drove it. I drove out here. I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Highway two, right? <laughs> well, I've got to get to the springs, the big Have spring. a very nice holiday, everybody. Yeah, yeah. same to you. Everyone, and we'll see you next year. Um, so happy reading. Bye-bye. You've been watching the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. To join or for more information, please visit us at www.upa.org or www.upnotable.com.